if your heart isn't in it, you're probably eventually going to quit whatever you're doing. You won't be very interested or enthusiastic if it's your diet plans, workout habits, work habits. For me, it was the CPA exam. I was an accountant years ago, and I thought maybe it would be a good idea to pursue that field, that occupation, and the next step would be to take four soul-sucking, life-crushing exams that change your life completely. So here I was grading my practice exam, and out of frustration, I threw the book across the room yelling, no, you are wrong. My answers are right. I was completely wrong. The book was right. But my heart was really never in accounting. It was a job to have as a secure job. But I knew deep down it wasn't the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't really have any passion behind it, so it was easy for me to quit. Even though it was my job, I knew that this job was not the one that I wanted. It was just something for me to do as I looked for the next thing. As Christians, we have one job, and it's the job that we're going to be doing no matter if we like it or not. Our job given to us by Christ is to make disciples of His Son, Jesus Christ. By reaching people, to see them converted, to baptize them, to see them taught what Jesus had commanded, and to train them to go out and reach more people to learn about how there's the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That is our, our one job. And it's not just if we don't have the heart for it. It's not our heart. We need God's heart. If we do not have God's heart for the lost, we will never persevere in our mission, never persevere in our job. We'll eventually give up on making disciples. We might do it for a season, but once people make it hard for us to keep going, when people continue to reject us, we're just going to quit. If we do not have God's heart in us, we will never persevere to reach the lost, those who do not believe in Christ. We must strive to have God's compassionate heart. This compassionate heart that you just read on the screen as Jordan read to you and Matt found in Matthew chapter 9. So actually turn to your Bibles right now, if it's on your iPad, if it's on your phone, or if you've got a good old paper Bible, let's turn there together. If you're looking at me, you're doing it wrong, and I need you to put your eyeballs on the Word. Because what my job is right now in this moment is to redirect your focus off of me and onto God. And God tore through space and time and gave us His Word to instruct us. So let's look down together and reread Acts 35. And I hope you see that they're, they're the God's compassionate heart here. And how we need to have this God's compassionate heart in order for us to even have hope to do our job well to make disciples. Because I failed the CPA exam because I didn't have the heart for it. And I don't want us as Christians to fail at our job to make disciples, to reach the, to reach the lost, to train and teach others to follow Christ I don't want us to fail because we don't have God's heart in us. But this job is something that is, we're used to seeing and understanding within, in, within church. We go, yes, I agree, Pastor, I understand. But this is something we should not gloss over. Let's read verse 35 again. And Jesus went throughout 
All the cities and villages. Now, this is Jesus continuing his mission. In Matthew chapter 4, after the temptations that he completed and was successful in resisting the devil, he then began to preach repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. He went around doing miracles to prove that he was the Messiah that was promised. And then he gave a speech. In Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, the speech is most famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And after the Sermon on the Mount, he went out again to do miracles, casting out demons, raising a little girl from the dead, healing a centurion servant, calming the waters, casting out demons, all to prove that he is the God that he's talking about. And then we slow down right here, and he's going through all the cities and villages in the, in the region of the, of the Galilee, the Galilee, the northern region of Israel, doing what? Continuing his mission, teaching in their synagogues teaching the Word of God, proclaiming the gospel, to publicly announce the truths of the gospel, the, the principles, while urging them, say, hey, you need to accept and comply to this message. The gospel of the kingdom, the Messiah, is finally here. The one that you've been looking forward to, Israel, world, the one that you've been looking forward to, to bless the nation, is finally here in Christ. I am here, and I'll prove it to you. For healing every sick disease, healing the afflictions, the weaknesses. And this is why we need to know our Bibles well. Because when we read that, go, oh, that's nice. He healed some people that were sick. He strengthened some people that were weak. And we think, oh, this is the thing that's going to continue on. This is what it's going to look like. No, Jesus is trying to prove a point here. If you know your Old Testament well, you, the, Isaiah 35 should be ringing in your mind. Verses 5 through 10, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame man should leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. This is what Jesus has been doing in Matthew 4 all the way here until here to Matthew chapter 9. He's showing that I am that God that Isaiah foretold, like in also in Isaiah 61. I'm the one bringing the good news, the gospel, to the poor. I'm the one that's going to bind up the brokenhearted. I'm the one proclaiming liberty to the captives. So when Jesus is going around teaching and proclaiming and doing these miracles, he's trying to prove a point that I am God. You're looking towards me as your Savior. I'm the one that's going to deliver you, Israel. I'm the one that's going to deliver you, world. So we see that there's this mission. It's a serious mission. Jesus is here to redeem. Jesus is here to change, to pull people out of darkness into light. The question you need to ask is like the region, why, why Galilee? Why did Jesus start there? Well, if you know your Old Testament well, you realize when God punished Israel for disobeying him to worship instead of Yahweh, to worship other gods, he used the nations of Assyria and the nations of Babylon to punish them and to exile them just as he has promised. And where was the first place Israel was attacked? In the northern regions of Israel. So here's Jesus in this region, you can say, on a reconquest. The nations of darkness have conquered Israel. Now he's saying, I'm coming back to save you. I'm going to start where it started. But it's not Jesus doing it alone. Actually, jump down to verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. He calls others, he calls his 12 disciples in this text to, to do the same thing that he is doing. What Jesus was doing in this moment was to cast out demons, to heal, 
to proclaim the gospel, and the disciples were supposed to do the same. In chapter 10, specifically, if you read on, this is Jesus' second discourse, his second speech. He's saying, just go to Israel. Just go to lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to the Gentiles yet. I'm training you. And in the book of Matthew, he ends his book with the Great Commission to say, go out to all the nations to do what job now? The job now for you and me and for the 12 disciples, well, I should say the 11 disciples, was to do the job that Jesus did to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to go make disciples now of, who, of him, of Jesus Christ. And so verse 1 of chapter 10 is alluding to what our future mission in Matthew 28 would be and the mission that is currently here. But he called them out. That word I want you to underline. I know I'm not a huge fan of underlining your paper Bible only because I underlined every line of my Bible so I had to buy a new one. If you want to see that Bible, just come to my office later, I'll show you. But underline, underline that word called, because that calling is not just some soft, like, hey, come over here, like, hey, I have a job for you. No, this is, this is more than the coach and the end of the game, the fourth quarter, there's 10 seconds left, they're down by two and they need to score. And he's grabbing the player and saying, you need to go in there and we need to win. The game is on you. It's more than that. It's like the captain or the sergeant in the battlefield. The bombs are exploding. The bullets are flying around. And he's grabbing a trooper and saying, you and I need to do this together. Lives depend on it. We have a mission. We need to go and do this. This is that word called. It's an urgent invitation to the disciples to accept the responsibilities that Jesus has. And Jesus is the one giving the authority, as you read on in chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. Because, hey, you have a new relationship with me now. You're following me? Now this is our job. And as Christians, as we follow Christ, this is our job. A job that later revealed in Matthew 28 to make disciples is alluded to here. But what God wants you and I to understand is that we have a job to do together. We're partnering with God in this. He wants us to be in this. And this isn't something that's just something like, yes, I understand, Pastor. Yeah, it's, it's to make disciples. We get it. We hear this every Sunday. It's like, no, understand the significance. Let Ponder on it. Understand the stakes. There's people on a highway to hell. They're going to experience the full wrath of God's fury for the sins that they have committed. And God has tasked us to go out and reach them, to proclaim the gospel that can actually save. If we actually soak that in into our, our minds, into our hearts, and into our actions, then we will actually make a difference in the world that we want to see happen. Jesus was continuing his mission so all the way started in Matthew 4, and now he's calling his disciples to join in the work. And with Matthew 28, he's telling his disciples to make more disciples, to bring more disciples into his work. We need to really understand this mission of ours. We can't just gloss over it, just like we're used to. We can't just nod our heads in agreement. No, we have to understand the urgency, the seriousness, the critical nature, the vi how vital this mission is to see people saved. We need to absorb the significance, embody it in our lives, to integrate it in every facet of our lives. If it's with our work, with our recreation, with our families, with, with our friends, or even our enemies, the way that we do work needs to be, this mission needs to be integrated in every facet of our lives because this is the mission that God has gave us to make disciples. 
We need to internalize this mission so we can do it well. So write that down for point number one. We need to internalize God's mission. When you have it soaked in your, in, into your being, into what you think and what you desire and what you do, your life will begin to look different. There is a man from New Zealand who currently lives in Huntington Beach. In his own words, he says that he's short. I heard him myself. He's very funny. But he goes out every single day just with one mission in mind to say, I want to evangelize to at least one person every single day. If you're familiar with Ray Comfort, you see his YouTube videos online as he tactfully and wisely is able to just share the gospel with different people The thing is, you see, is that he's not trying to be a Pharisee about this and say, you know what, I I just want to do this so I can feel good. I want to do this because I want to earn bonus points with God. I need to do this because I want want people to see I'm a good Christian. No, he has soaked in God's mission so much in his life that he cannot leave the door of his home to say, I have to let someone know about the gospel. I need to let people know that there's this creator out there who holds authority. He's created all of us. He's in charge. Unfortunately, is that we've rebelled against this creator. We've rebelled against this person in charge. He is perfect and holy. We are not. As we're searching for justice in this world, he is justice. He defines justice. He created justice. And he will exact a perfect justice on every single one of us. We're separated from God. He wants them to know you are separated from God. And you're going to be eternally separated from his eternal blessing. Instead, you're going to be experiencing his entire wrath. And justly so. For all the lies that we have told. For all the anger that we've had against people. All the, the, the slandering we do behind each other's backs. The pride that just oozes out of our being. God has it. You know, I need to be a just God and take care of it. But God wants to display his love. He sent down his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that we can never live, the perfect life that God's standard de- demands, to die a death that you and I deserve. This man, Ray Comfort, wants people to know this and to know that the head of the serpent in Genesis 3 has been crushed by Jesus Christ when he died and three days later rose from the dead to say, now I have authority over death. And I'm here to set people free. And that is how great comfort goes out every single day to say, I want you to know this beautiful message that your sins can be forgiven. You can be set free from your sin. You don't no longer have to live a life of this addiction and say you can be free. And instead of being a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. And that's what happens when we internalize it. We just go out and do it. Ray is like Paul. When Paul wrote to the Roman church saying, I can't wait to meet you. I haven't met you yet. I can't wait. I've heard about you. I heard about your church, and I can't wait to visit you. I'm almost done with my my mission work here in ancient Greece and ancient Turkey. I planted all the churches I can plant. I raised all the pastors I need to raise up, and now I can't wait to go to you in Rome. To do what? Romans 1.15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. He's internalized it. He knows what his mission is. All he's thinking about is the gospel. All he desires is for people to believe the gospel. What he's doing to say, I want to do my job to make disciples, beginning with proclaiming the gospel. In verse 16, he's internalized it so much that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not embarrassed to bring it up, to let people know I'm a Christian. 
Do you know how to be saved and how to find forgiveness of sins? Oh, hey, waiter, you're great. Oh, you're Buddhist. Oh, hey, do you know what about Jesus? You're doing all these rituals to atone for your sin, but do you want to know the person who atoned it, atoned it completely? He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he understands this fact. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. First to the Jew, to the God's chosen people, and to the Greek, to all the Gentiles, to you and me, to everyone. It is the power of God to save. You want to know what the righteousness of God looks like? Paul said it is being revealed in the gospel. When you internalize our mission to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples... And sometimes discipleship begins by evangelizing to the lost. As Jesus is doing in Matthew 9. But in order for us to internalize this, to let this soak into our brains, to lead our heart's desires, to allow our, our feet and hands to do this work, one of the ways we start to do this is make sure are we listening to what God has to say. We're not sitting here trying to empty out our minds in a dark room, to listen to an audible voice that we hope to hear. You're more likely to hear your conscience or the little cricket from Pinocchio. Instead, how do you want to hear what God has to say? Pick up your Bible and open it and read it, asking God to explain it to you. We need to listen to God, how he, how he did it, what his son's death and resurrection means. And that we need to listen to him how we are supposed to partake in this mission. To, in, to really internalize our mission, we need to make sure we are reprioritizing every, uh, every aspect of our whole lives. Reprioritizing. Seeing like, how does, how does my work fit into this mission? How does my recreation, I'm about to go on this cruise, it's going to be nice, it's going to be restful, I can't wait for the buffet... But how can I witness to my fellow cabin mate across the hall? How can I witness to that waiter who's going to be giving me my food for the next few days? What about the person cleaning the pool or the deck? How can I witness to them and share them about the gospel? Meeting people from all over the world. Imagine that. Imagine they get saved on that cruise and they go back home. You're able to reach people that you never thought of. So with our neighbors to our coworkers, to the strangers that we meet, to everyone that we encounter and saying, how does my grocery shopping fulfill the mission? How does my study habits or my work habits fulfill the mission to say, I want to see people saved? When you internalize it, you actually will be able to understand reality. I, I love the outdoors. I love going out to the river and to the lake and seeing the beautiful trees here in New Braunfels. But there's one thing you, I, I try not to say. I try to say, oh, I love nature. Because that's not nature. It's, God, it's creation. And what the, the reality is, is God's creation is trying to cry out to you and me to reveal to, to us that there is a glorious God that created this and that we can eventually understand and know who that God is. And thankfully, God gave us his word so that we can know him. We can turn, turn to his word to internalize this mission. And when you understand the mission, you'll understand the reality that there is evil in this world. And you understand the solution to that evil. Every once in a while, I'll pop in on social media or listen to the headline or watch the, uh, read the headline news or 
You might say, what, what is the world's solutions to the, the issues? Everyone's seeing the problem. What is their solutions? But a lot of the solutions is usually just covering up the pain, trying to hide it, to not acknowledge it. When the, the reality is, I know you can embrace it and get through it and endure it, and God is your solution. That's what happens when you internalize the mission. You're able to see reality better. You see the reality that no one is too hard-hearted. God can break through any hard heart. Think of Paul. He was murdering God's church, and God broke his heart and saved him. I can think of someone right now who was convicted of murder, who got saved two years into his prison sentence, and God used him for the next 23 years to reach people in the prison. No one is too hard-hearted. No one is too lost. But you have to make sure that you know what the promise is found in God's Word. And when we internalize this mission, we better understand reality. Our expectations of our task to make disciples is real. The expectations that it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's not going to be easy. People are going to reject you. People are going to mock you. People are going to hate you. People are going to start strong and then leave. People are going to fall away. But when we internalize this message, it helps us to keep going. It keeps us in focus as, as Paul was focused when Jesus told Paul his mission. And it's the same mission for us. So when Jesus told Paul in Acts 26, 18, that Paul's mission was to go to the Gentiles, for us is to go to the rest of the world to see their eyes opened. So that they may turn from darkness to light, from power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of their sins and be placed among those who are set apart, who are holy, who are sanctified by their works? No, by faith in me, by faith in Christ. If we really allow this mission as we study God's word and listen to what he has to say, it'll change our thinking, it'll change our desires, and it'll change our actions. It'll help us to keep going when it gets really, really, really hard. When people sin against you, when you sin against them, when you're tired, taking an early morning phone call or late night phone call, setting up a Bible study that they don't show up to, you can keep going in the mission if you internalize it in your entire being because you understand the stakes. But all that is for naught if we do not have God's heart. And that's the whole point of this sermon, is to make sure that, are we seeking after God's heart? And what, is, what does God's heart look like? What's well, found in back in Matthew 9, go to Matthew 9, verse 36. Let's continue in reading this passage. When Jesus, he sees these crowds, he sees everyone that he's working on, the people he's healed, the people that are about to be healed, they're coming to him broken, tired, weary, thirsty. What is his reaction? They smell bad. I'm another person again. Can people get their lives together? Now, he had compassion. I want you to underline that word too. I'm breaking my own rule. Underline two words in your Bible this morning. That compassion. It's a very dramatic Greek word. It's like splengthen. It's just, it sounds like guttural because it is. The word compassion, is, it's a guttural painful affection for someone and a love for someone who's in need. Jesus is seeing this crowd and his, his reaction is pain. His reaction is pain because he sees the pain they're going through. 
This isn't new for Jesus. This isn't the first time and only time we see this compassion for God. You can jot down Matthew 14, 14 and Matthew 15, 32. Matthew 14, 14, Matthew 15, 32. Same book, same word. He sees the crowd. He's about to feed the 5,000, about to feed the 3,000. And he has this guttural compassion for them. He sees them and he's like, I love these people. I want to help them. But this isn't the only, it's only just, not just Matthew, it's, it's the whole New Testament. There's another word out there that kind of describes this guttural love. It's, a, it's the word agape, this sacrificial love. Like Romans 5, 8, God shows his love, his agape love for us while we were sinners, enemies, rebels against him, spitting on him, trampling on the blood of Christ, he died for us. He loved us so much that his action led, he loved us so much it led to action, and his action was dying for us. And it's not just the God of the New Testament. It's the mean, old, angry God of the Old Testament that you keep hearing about. I want you to jot down Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This angry God of the Old Testament is described as so, is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And here it is, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in sacrificial love, abounding in this guttural love for his people. And he's faithful and he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This compassionate God of the entire Bible is right here in Jesus Christ. And he sees the crowds and he sees them that they're harassed. Continue on in verse 36. He said they're harassed, distressed. It's metaphorically being like torn apart by wolves. They're helpless. They're thrown down. They're cast down. They're enslaved to sin. But they're weary. They're scattered all over the place. He sees this and he's like, I love them and I want to help. And there's these five powerful words in, the, in the, our English text right here. Like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he sees them. Like sheep without a shepherd. If you don't know your Old Testament well, these words are like, oh, okay, yeah, I know that. Jesus is the good shepherd. Let's learn more about this compassionate God. Let's learn more about his heart by turning to maybe some sticky pages of your Bible. In Ezekiel 34, let's turn together, let's bookmark Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 9, and let's jump to Ezekiel chapter 34, because we need to understand who is this God? Who is this God that has such a guttural reaction that sees people like a sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? Too often we look at the New Testament, look back to the Old to try to make sense of it. Instead, we need to take the Old Testament to look at the New to really understand it, to really see the significance. Because what Matthew did right here, what God did through Matthew, is to drop a mind bomb on us, to blow our minds to go, who is this Jesus? Is this, who, is, who is this Jesus? Jesus is this God of Ezekiel 34. Jump down to verse 4. There, during this time in Ezekiel, this is where the exile is about to begin. Israel's in sin, and their shepherds didn't help. The guys who tend the sheep, no, the shepherds are the priests. The people who were responsible to handle God's word and to teach it to Israel so that they can faithfully follow God. But unfortunately, the, the shepherds failed. They actually jumped in with Israel's sin. They actually helped Israel. They said, you know what, let's, let's put the Yahweh aside. Let's put up a golden calf. Let's, put, let's worship other gods. Let's sacrifice the kids. Let's do everything possible to worship other gods and not Yahweh. And so God has very strong words for these shepherds. What were they doing? Verse 4, these shepherds 
We're not tending to the weak. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The, the strayed, the ones that have wandered, you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they scattered because there was no shepherd. You begin to see how Matthew's words are a little bit more powerful, but let's keep going. And they have become food for wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They're harassed. They're helpless. Nothing has changed in the, 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 the hundred years, several hundred years from Ezekiel to Jesus' time. Let's jump down to verse 8. What is God's reaction? As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become prey, my sheep have become food for the wild beasts. Since there is no shepherd, because my, sh- my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Jump down to verse 10. Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand. There will be justice. And put a stop to the feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And this is where it gets good right here. Verse 11. We're about to see God's compassionate heart on display. What does this compassionate heart look like? It looks like this. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pastures. Jump down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring them back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. So when Matthew writes these words, when Jesus sees the sheep without a shepherd, he's like, I am the shepherd. John's words are way more powerful now. I am the good shepherd. Doesn't it make sense now that when Jesus is saying that, he's saying, I am the God of Ezekiel 34, the one that's going to rescue you, the one that's going to heal you, the one that's going to save you. Here I am. He see my heart. I'm here. And furthermore, jump down to verse 22. Verse 23, excuse me. And I hope you begin to see how the Old Testament is revealing the new the entire time. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Remember the beginning of Matthew, if you're with us, for the Christmas series? This is the account of of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Matthew knows what he's talking about when he's writing these words, that he's sheep without a shepherd, because he's remembering Ezekiel 34. That here's this David, this messianic figure. Who, what will you do? He will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Don't the feeding of the 5,000 and the 3,000 look a little different now? And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord. I have spoken. It will be done. And here's Jesus tearing through space and time and to these people, seeing a crowd, having compassion, saying, I am your shepherd. I am here. Follow me. I'm ready to help you. Isn't the compassion of God so beautiful? And this compassion is what we need as disciples to fulfill our shepherd's mission for us. 
As fellow sheep, we're trying to gather in more sheep to follow our wonderful, compassionate, loving Savior and loving shepherd. So when Jesus sees these people, it leads them to an action. Verse 37, go back to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 37. He turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful. It's ready. Just like he said in John 4. There are four months and then comes a harvest. Don't say that. Look up. Lift up your eyes and see that the, wheel, the fields are white for harvest. They're brothels. We have to look up. The fields of the harvest are plentiful here and it's growing the apartment complexes, the condos and the neighborhoods and the homes being built. This is something for us to groan at. Instead, it's to say, there's another mission field. There's another mission field. The harvest is growing. The harvest is growing. The harvest is growing. God, help me to be a faithful worker. This is what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. So what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to pray earnestly. That word pray earnestly is actually one Greek word. It's to say to ask with urgency, to beg, to plead, to who? To God, to the Lord of the harvest, to do what? To send out. And that two-letter word is actually one word. It's to thrust out, to throw out with a purpose, to throw out laborers, to throw out workers into this harvest so that God can be glorified by the saving of people who are living in sin and darkness, who are enslaved, to finally be set free through the good, compassionate shepherd. If you know your Bibles really well, this work that we have in the hardest is, a, is an illusion or remembrance of why humans were created in the first place back in Genesis 1 and 2. God created the garden. He created Adam and he created Eve. And what was their task? Yeah, to be fruitful and multiply. We like that part, but to work the garden. They're supposed to work with God in the garden because they were finally, they were in God's presence, but they worked with God. But what did they end up doing? They worked against him. They rebelled against him. And they were cast out of God's presence in Eden. And the whole story of the Bible is how do we get back to God? In reality, it's how did God eventually get us back to him? And as we inherited Adam and Eve's nature, as we rebel against God and for all the, all the lying that we do, all the anger that we have towards people, all the things that we say towards one another, are we working with God? No. Even our kids. My son's 16 months old and he's already learning about obedience. I should say disobedience. He's cute, but he's a sinner. He's separated. And our work now is being redeemed. Our work, instead of working the garden in Eden, now the, us being saved by God by repenting and trusting in Christ, now our work is no longer in a garden, it's in the harvest field. And compass, make sure we're not head down to focus on our, our lives. Instead, let's look up and look around to see the harvest is so plentiful. And we all need to work because the laborers are few. We need to encourage other Christians that go to Bible-believing churches here in the area to preach the gospel, to join us in the harvest field. We're all pulling the ship together. But in order for that to happen, we need to have God's heart in us. So in order for us to really do our job well, we need to do this. Point number two, cultivate a tender heart towards the lost. 
As God had a tender heart towards you, we need to have a tender heart towards the lost. A tender heart is going to look like this, and you can say almost in three ways. You can jot down Romans 9, 1 through 3. Romans 9, 1 through 3. What Paul's tender heart is revealed in this, that he's speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. His conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. So believe these words when he says this, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For what? That I myself wish I was accursed and cut off from Christ. I wish I could go to hell. For what reason? For the sake of my brothers, my fellow Jew, who, who are rejecting the Messiah that was promised who are rejecting the Savior that said that here, here, here I am, I'm ready to heal you. I want, I'll, I'll trade places with them. That's what a tender heart looks like. To see the person that you just like, get frustrated at. Whatever political beliefs that they have, whatever they're worshiping, you know, something else other than God. If it's worshiping the nation, worshiping their own bodies, whatever it is, if it's not worshiping God, you're like, I just, they're too hard-hearted. A tender heart would go, I mean, I wish I could just trade places. I want to go to hell so they can go to heaven. I knew those words, but I didn't know those words. And so Kate and my wife, Candace, and I we were able to have Mormon missionaries come over to our house for seven months. And week after week, we would sit there and try to plead with them to reject their cult, to reject the, the, the damnation that they have, and to say, no, reject that. Do the big sacrifice. You have to reject your family. You have to reject your lives. They're going to cast you out. But follow the truth. Follow Christ. Don't listen to Satan, please. And they would leave out the door unchanged. And Candace and I would weep and understood what Paul meant. I just want to switch places to these sweet young men, these 18-year-old men who are in our homes. They're kind, they're sweet, but they're not going to be saved unless they repent. A tender heart will also look like this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. To be able to see someone so sinful, to see someone so rebellious, and have a different thought. We know those words famously. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, or adulterers, or the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We know that. We know, yes. You know, think about it. There's no one. That covers all of us, by the way. One of, our, one of us is doing one of those sins in that list, if not the rest of the sins found in Galatians 5 or Colossians 3. We're we're a slave to these practices, these sins. And there is no hope. There is no hope for salvation in ourselves. We will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, we'll be eternally separated from Him, from His goodness. Instead, we'll be eternally experiencing His wrath. But a tender heart remembers verse 11. Too often, our hard hearts stop at verse 10 and go, yeah, that person's not going to inherit the kingdom. Oh, well. But a tender heart remembers verse 11. That takes the log out of our own eye. It says this, as were some of you. Remember, you were sexually immoral. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You may have been practicing homosexuality. You may have been a thief. You have been greedy. You were a drunkard. You were proud. You were reviling. You were slander. You were swindling. But you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. A tender heart remembers. Okay, that person's hard-hearted. I get it. God can save them. 
To see the display of sin in some peoples is mind-blowing. To see their love and hate, their love for themselves, their hatred towards God, to whatever political issue that is happening in this country, we can see people who are in love with themselves regardless of what aisle you may sit on. And it's terrifying. You're like, there's no way this person's going to get saved. I can't talk to them. A tender heart's going to remember, no. This person can't be saved, and I'm going to trust God and proclaim the gospel to this person. Because the third thing a tender heart looks like is in Jude 23. I'm going to try to snatch people out of the fire. What is the fire? The hell fire. I'm going to try to snatch them out. Saying, you're lost, but I'm going to grab you. So how do we cultivate a heart that is like God's? Just like under point number one, we need to make sure we're listening to God. We need to be soaking up God's word. Not so that we become academic and be able to sound smart in life group and to be able to say, I, got, I can get a degree in this. No, it's to say, I want to listen to what God has to say. I want to follow after this. We need to listen to God explain his heart for the lost. Three more Bible texts you need to write down. I'll repeat them a couple times. Ezekiel 33, 11. Ezekiel 33, 11, where God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's going to exact justice. He doesn't take pleasure out of it. He created these people. Instead, what does it say? He would rather have the wicked turn from his way and live. So he cries out to Israel, turn back, turn back from your evil way. That's God's heart. That is our heart. When we see people just living in such rebellion, we say, turn back, please. Instead of giving them the cold shoulder, we just say, please turn. Please live. 2 Peter 3 9. 2 Peter 3 9. God's tender heart looks like this that He doesn't want people to perish, but He wants all people to reach repentance. And to emphasize the point, 1 Timothy 2 4. 1 Timothy 2 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not saying all people will be saved, but He wants His creation back with Him. That is his heart, and that's the heart we need to pray for. So we need to listen to him, Ezekiel 33, 11, 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4. But also we need to make sure we're praying to God to change our mind and our hearts. We need to have a renewed mind, as Romans 12 talks about, and to have a clean heart, as Psalm 51 talks about, to God to change us so we can match him. And when we do that, when God changes our hearts to match his our evangelism would, will look different. It'll actually become a little easier. It'll start to overflow out of your, yourself. Your evangelism will be able to push through the awkwardness. It is awkward to talk to someone. It's like, how do I like, do a weird Christian pickup line to get them on a level, a spiritual level to go, like, how do I get to Jesus? Hey, do you like football? Do you know who may have not liked football? I don't know, Jesus? You know what hit a, had a perfect batting average? Jesus? You know who would never miss a three-point shot? Uh, Jesus. It's, it's awkward to bring it up. But having a tender heart, you know, I'm just going to bring it up anyway. Saying, hey, what do, you, what do you think of the world? What do you think the solution of the world is? Do you think there's evil in the world? Because I do. I think, but I think there's a solution. Or even a simple question like this. Do you believe in a life after death? And pushing through these awkward conversations, even the fear that we have, or even the shame. If you ask Ray Comfort himself, there's times with the man who evangelizes every single day, he's like, there's times I don't want to go. I see people, I'm like, that guy's going to tear me in half. He's huge. I'm short. His words, not mine. 
There's even embarrassment involved. But if we have God's tender heart in our hearts, we will push through all of that. If we have his heart, we'll just do it. Regardless if we succeed, stumble over our words, or if we fail. Succeed or fail, if we have God's tender heart, we'll just keep going. If we have God's heart, we'll be able to answer the call just like the disciples did, just like these 12 apostles. Let's go back to Matthew 10, and starting in verse 2, and let's, let's read these names and think about the significance of these men answering this call. The names of the 12 apostles who answered the call to Jesus' first mission, the, fir- the first calling, there's 12 of them. In Matthew 28, there was 11 of them, as the last name kind of shows. But the first name was Simon, who was called Peter, the bold, impulsive, kind of sometimes foolish leader. There's Andrew, his brother. And there's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These two men were very angry. They, their nickname were the Sons of Thunder. What does that mean? Well, when the town rejected them, they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want to call down fire just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just wipe out the whole town for just insulting you? Jesus is like, dude, calm down. These, these guys, these angry fellows, there's Philip and Bartholomew, there's Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Like, okay, do you like the IRS? Imagine a Jewish tax collector who betrayed his people, joined Rome, their conquerors, and was stealing money from his fellow people. This guy is a part of the names. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Oh, we all want to be a zealot for the Lord. Well, Rome would have classified Simon as a terrorist because the zealots were a group of people who wanted to overthrow Rome through violence. And we, we see, this, see this in one of the Jewish revolts in 66 to 73 AD that resulted into the complete destruction of the temple. J- Jerusalem was ravaged by the general Titus, who be, eventually became Emperor Titus, because the zealots were trying to overthrow Rome. And eventually ended when their fortress, fortress of Masada was destroyed. These zealots. So you have a tax collector and a person who hated Rome, a person working with Rome and a person who hated Rome working together. And then you had Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. In Matthew 28, verses 17 to 20, this is the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Eleven of them answered the call. Remember, Judas betrayed them. These men answered the call to reach the world. Because it's all nations. It wasn't just Israel, it's all nations now. They answered the call regardless of the pain that they felt. If you don't know this, Judas was the most trusted disciple. We forget that because you know, he's, he's the traitor. He's the one that held on to the money back. They're like, we trust Judas so much, we're going to give him all of our money And he's the one that betrayed him. There's going to be people within this church or other Christians that are going to hurt you. And what the disciples are showing is saying, yes, they hurt you. But guess what? Your job doesn't end. You have to keep going. You've got to keep answering the call. So regardless if you're all in or if you've been hurt and been damaged, you still have to do our job to answer this call. So let our compassionate hearts, let's follow the examples of the 11 and also the people that they discipled, and all the people that they discipled, and the people that discipled you, let's follow their example. And point number three, let's answer God's call to make disciples. But who are we making disciples of? Well, there's two people. One, there's the, you know, the, the people who are making the disciples of the children of God, those who are saved, 
a newsflash, not everyone's a child of God. We're all His creation, but the children of God are those who have repented and trusted in Christ. But we're also supposed to reach out to God's enemies. In 2007, the Seattle Times reported, a, uh, reported an event of a, two army helicopters landing on the roadside after an explosion happened, and they rescued some wounded soldiers, U.S. soldiers, a few civilians, and then one Iraqi insurgent. Insurgent's a fancy word for terrorist. And as they were searching the terrorist pockets, they found the tripwire that set off the bomb that exploded and that injured everyone on this, air, on this helicopter. So what did they do? Did they just shoot the guy on spot? No, they took him in for a couple of reasons. One, the secular reason of, like, you know, we need information. He might know about other, other, other of his friends are going to hurt us. But also because, okay, we, we need to stand above this. Well, we have to be greater than that as Christians. We're not only discipling the children of God, we're trying to reach out to the people who hate God, who are trying to tear God down, who are rebelling against God, who hate your guts, and God says, go get them. It's not just a rescue mission for the, you know, the nice ladies and the, and the kids. It's like, no, you're going after the enemy, and you're trying to save them. That's who we're trying to reach. That is the lost. It's God making his plea through us as his ambassadors for people to be right with God, especially his enemies. And for us to really answer this call, we need to do several things. So get your pen ready. You've got to go quickly. First, we have to drop the distractions. Our mission is clear, Matthew 28, make disciples. But some distractions can look like as the civilian pursuits, our, our, things that could be good, our jobs, our families, our vacations, th things that are good. But they can, if they are in the forefront of your mind and you're forgetting about your disciple-making, they can be distracting you. So that's why Paul writes to Timothy, say, hey, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We have been enlisted by God, so we need to follow his orders. Not to say you can't have a home, not to say you can go on a vacation, not saying that you can't enjoy your family. What I'm saying is you have to realize all of that needs to be put into the box of how can I make disciples? Other distractions can be sinful. I mean, just sin. I don't need to really elaborate on sin. You know what sin, you, sins that you're, you're being tempted by. But as Hebrews 12 said, you know, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those witnesses in Hebrews are the Old Testament faithful. Now we have other faithful, these faithful 11 disciples, and also the disciples throughout history, including the ones that led you to Christ, Use them to encourage you to lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely to you and run the race of endurance to make disciples. So we need to drop the distractions. We need to focus on the mission. And then three, focus on the one who saves. We need to rely on Jesus. If you just try to do this on your own, you're going to fail. Jesus says it, it makes it abundantly clear in John 15. You must abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. So as we're making disciples, we have to make sure we're praying. We're listening to him. We're following him. We're asking him for strength to keep going, to push through these awkward conversations to reach the lost, to continue in our disciple making as we're getting coffee or in, or in life group. We have to keep going and trusting in him. So drop the distractions. Focus on the mission. Focus on the one who saves. Number four, understand the cost. Understand the cost. Go home today and read through Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. The cost is clear. It's going to cost you your family. It's going to cost you friends, your reputation. They call Jesus evil. You're going to be called evil, so don't be surprised. And it's going to cost you you. Matthew 16. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. You've got to deny you in order to faithfully answer the call. 
Understand who you are reaching. Go and do it. And lastly, focus on the hope. Even though it's going to be hard, it can be painful, focus on the hope. God says, don't, don't worry about being brought before the authorities. I will speak for you. This is the time for you to witness to people that you have never met before in your life. Let me give you the words. Or as Matthew ends this book, Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. And if we're able to do this, we'll be able to push through hardships. We'll be like the disciples, the same list of men, the 11 men in Acts 5 who were beat up. And yet they rejoiced, not ceasing from teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. These men, as church tradition talks through, all these men died really horrible deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified as well. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by King Herod. John, his brother, was exiled into his death. Philip and Bartholomew were crucified or stoned. Thomas, the doubter, became Thomas the evangelizer, went to India, started the church there, and got stabbed by spears. Matthew's death, we're not sure what kind of weapon he died by. James, the son of Alphaeus, was pushed off the pinnacle of the temple. Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, died together. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned to death. And then Paul, who Jesus called, was beheaded in Rome. Now, we can see that and go, man, that's, I don't know if I want to answer that call. But they would tell you, if they were here in this room today, they know it was worth it. It was worth all the pain because we died doing our job. If you look at these accounts, according to church tradition, they died evangelizing. They died reaching the lost. And the churches that they planted in the regions were able to reach an area that was pagan and then was Christianized. And think about this, 2,000 years later, on a continent they didn't know existed, their legacy continues. And more importantly, it's God's legacy that continues. They followed the call. Jesus led by example, said, this is how you're going to do it. I'm going to give you authority to do it. And the disciples did it, and they made disciples, and those disciples made disciples, and those disciples made disciples, and they made more disciples. And here we are 2,000 years later on the legacy of these 11 faithful men as we are now supposed to answer the call to continue God's mission to make disciples. So let God's heart burn in us to answer this call here and now in the hill country of New Braunfels as, we, as God builds this church, let us be faithful to do our job, which is to make disciples which entails to reach the lost, no matter who they may be. Sometimes we might look at certain people, maybe people in our culture that we're trying to reach and go, they're too hard. I don't know how to talk to someone like that. How do I talk to someone who, who is in part of the LGBTQ community? I just don't want to do but just turn myself away from them. How, how can I convince them to give up their lifestyle to follow Christ? I don't know what to do. God, I, I don't have a heart to do it. Well, thankfully, my parents have God's heart in them. And as they had a tenant in their apartments that they own, there's a man who's living in a lifestyle that was against God, not just his sexual lifestyle, but his entire life was against God. And normally sometimes we just kind of like, I don't want to say, I'm just going to walk away slowly. They pressed and pressed on. They kept inviting. They showed God's compassion and love to him. They bought him a Bible. They said, you need to read it. Listen to who Jesus is. Follow Jesus. You don't know what God's going to do through that. When he got the news that he has terminal cancer and he's going to die any day, the people, person, the people that he reached out to first were my parents. And he asked him, who is this Jesus again? So my parents were able to finally share again, but to a man who had a listening heart because they saw God's compassionate heart in them, that he saw who God was through my parents 
And so they're able to share the gospel again, and this time he says, yes, I will follow. And even though he has days to live, we don't know, as cancer's ravaging his body, he's like, I want to show this same compassion to the nurses and to the doctors and the people in my life to say there is, there is hope. And he's trying to soak in everything he can to learn about this compassionate God and the people that faithfully obeyed him. So let us not look at people. Let us repent from our complaining and grudging as the city grows, as the traffic gets worse, as the apartment complex starts to carve out the good views. Let's no longer say, ah, let's repent from that. Instead, let's say, God, give me a heart to reach these people. There is a harvest, Compass Bible Church, and it's our job from Christ through his authority to go out and reach the lost. So I pray that God's compassionate heart is instills in you for us to say, I'm done complaining. I have a mission to the day I die to see people from darkness into light. So Compass, please follow God's compassionate heart. And let's leave this building resolved to say whatever part of my life is, if it's my work or recreation or even lunch after church, let me be faithful to my job to make disciples. And let's first start by reaching the lost people that only God can save. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your heart, your heart of compassion, your heart of love, the heart that tore through space and time to deliver us from our wicked sin. So God, help us to have your heart. Help us to do our job to reach the lost as our church grows, as our city grows. Help us to see that the harvest is plentiful and ready for you to display your glory and your power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to leave changed this morning. Please allow your heart to be in us, Lord. We can't do it, but only you can. Help us to turn to your word. Help us to turn to you in prayer. And help us to turn to your community found in the church. So God, please be with us this morning. We know that we can't do this unless we're abiding in you. So God, we pray all this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.